It's funny because it's true. It's just, it's just the way it goes. Just the way it goes. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back here with you. Um, my wife and I had the opportunity to take a couple of weeks to go up to Colorado and spend some time in the mountains, and uh, we had a great vacation. It's good to be back, but I do want to take a moment just to uh, really, one thing I appreciate about Seacoast is you give us the permission, whether you know it or not, you give us the permission to to take time as a family and, and your paid staff to to get away, to disconnect a little bit, and to recharge. And and honestly, we appreciate that. And not every church allows their pastoral team to do that. And we want to thank you that you give us that chance to get away and hang out with our family and. Um, you know, driving in our RV for two weeks and living with all of five of us, um, you know, I know you would like to do the same, 2,800 miles. And, uh, <laughs> but we act, it actually was uh, restful in, in some ways. And so <laughs> it, it was good. So I do, uh, we are appreciative of, of that. And one thing that's great is uh, one of the reasons we have the teaching team is so that we can get away and do things like that. But, you know, last week we had our high school pastor, Joe Fogel, taught and, and I love that, uh, and listen to it, he did such an amazing job, and, and I just love that, uh, that we can do that here. And when, when the, one of my friends who's not a Christian, I was tell, he was saying, wait, how do you get away and leave and not be there on Sundays? And I said, well, we have a teaching team and other people teach, and last week our high school pastor taught, and he, he said, what happens if they're better than you? <laughs> Like, oh, I don't know. I guess I started doing high school ministry. And I <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I would love if uh, they are better than me. I think that's a good thing as watching uh, some of those guys develop and, and teach. So it was fun to, to uh, get away. So thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I want to give you just a, a couple of quick little announcements. This is not announcement time, but I wanted to get a couple other things in. Um, it, men, I just want to speak to you for just a moment. On in two weeks from now, on Friday the 19th, uh, we are going to have a we're going on a deep sea fishing trip for one day, and want to invite you and let you know about it. Um, we've mentioned it before, but it's going to be a really great time. It's a great opportunity to invite a coworker. I know it's a work day, but we chartered the boat, so it's just us. We're not competing with other people. So because it's a work day, you may have to invite your boss. But just whatever it takes, um, if, but it's going to be a really great time out there. We are um, hoping to catch tuna and dorado, which are mahi-mahi. And so it's really a fun time. I want to personally invite you. My son and I will be there. We go every year, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and just so you know what we're, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, want to brag or anything, but I want to show you, this is what we got last year. Yeah, you know, um, my son did not catch that. I did. Let's just be clear. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, but this, that's a Dorado, Mahi Mahi. That's what well, the things we're going after out there. And so I just want to, I mean, the bar's been raised, people. Come on. Uh, no, but it's a lot of fun. We'd love for you uh, to come and join us and, and spend the day. And hopefully we'll have some fish tacos and, and some sashimi ahi by the time the day is over. So if you want to invite coworkers, people you co- coach with, neighbors, it's a, it's a great opportunity. So um, that's that. And uh, one other thing is uh, next Saturday, we're having a work day here at the church. We haven't done this, I don't think, in a, in a long time. But we're trying to finish our library project there. And so we're asking for some volunteer help. Uh, we'll be doing some landscaping and we'll even give you an opportunity to help us finish it on time and on budget by purchasing either 10 or $25 plant so we can finish our landscaping and, and 
wrap up that project. But next Saturday at 8 a.m., we're going to have a work day. And it's always kind of fun to get together and work as a, as a congregation. And so I want to invite you out to that next Saturday as well. Okay, that's enough. I snuck in a couple announcements, I know, but that's the way it goes. So uh, today we are um, continuing our series in Hebrews chapter 11, and the series we've been going through is a series called Vintage Faith, and, and vintage, uh, we call it that because vintage, the word actually is of preserving a quality or something from of old that is worth carrying on. So when we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all these stories of faith and the men and women throughout the last thousand a couple thousand years, three, three, four thousand years who've been following the God we follow and looking at stories of, in their lives of faith. And so it's a faith that we want to carry on to this day. So today we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at a character that you would be familiar with if you're from uh, Christian or Hebrew circles, if you're Jewish faith or Christian faith, or it's actually a character that most people are familiar with no matter what. And uh, we're going to look at Moses a little bit, but mostly the people surrounding his life. So we're going to take a little different take on Moses and his life today. So we'll be doing that in just a moment. Um, as we get started, you know, the other night I was walking my dog. I have this giant golden retriever. He's over 100 pounds, uh, this red golden retriever. He's uh, just, he really is probably the nicest dog I've ever had. He's, he really is a sweetheart. In the words of um, Clark W. Griswold, his heart is bigger than his brain. Um, but he, he really is this sweet dog. And I was walking him the other night and just thinking, man, he really, he's, he's just fun to have. He's such a joy for the family. But the reason we have him actually is because we had a dog before him, um, a golden retriever before him. And one day I was uh, with my three boys, and our old golden retriever, and we rode our bikes to the donut shop for breakfast that day. I think we got kicked out of the house. It was Saturday morning. And so um, my wife said, why don't you go somewhere with the boys? So we went and, and hung out, and uh, we had breakfast. And I even remember that day, at the time, my youngest was like two years old, and the dog um, borrowed half of his donut while we were sitting down eating. And um, so it's kind of a normal morning for us. And when we got back on the bikes, we are getting ready to ride back home as um, strapping my youngest son in, and the other two got on their bikes and started going. I was getting on my bike, and my dog uh, decided to, he saw a German shepherd on the other side of the road, so he decided to go say hi to him. So he runs across the road while we're yelling at him. He got to the other side and realized he'd be in trouble, so he turned around and came back. Now the problem is this road was uh, three lanes both ways, so like Camino Real, El Camino Real. And he made it all the way there and made it almost all the way back. And when he got to the final lane, the sixth lane, all the other five lanes were stopped and people were kind of getting out. And one car who we think she was on her phone, but didn't slow down at all and hit our dog. And later the day, uh, later in that day, he died of, of internal uh, bleeding and injuries. But that moment was, you know, it's one of those moments where your kids are growing up and you say, you know, it, it's part of life. It's a lesson you learn. And it's, but that moment was one of those where for me, was one of those where you keep going back like, oh, if only I would have been holding that leash and not, you know, while I'm strapping them in. If only he would have just listened. If only the guy on the other side of the road would have grabbed him when he made it to that side. Or if only someone would have seen him. Or I should have never brought him today. And it's one of those events in life where I, we have all those I should haves or if onlys. You know, and when we look through our lives, we, we often have should haves and if onlys all the time, 
right? Oh, if I only would have done this, or I should have done that instead. I should have invested in this stock instead of that one. I should have bought this house. I should have sold my house then, whatever. All these if only, if only, if only, and should have. And that's kind of a part of life. But I was thinking as I was looking at today's passage and wondering what would it be like if we were people who had such confidence in God and his character, if our faith was so strong that in our spiritual lives we never had to go, we never had those if onlys and should haves. That if our spiritual lives were so strong that we lived our lives in light of God and his truth and at the end of our days we say we can stand confidently with who and who we are and how we live. Now that would be great, and it's probably not reality because we're always going to have regrets and, and mistakes and failures, but that's, what would it look like if we did? And as I look at the people around Moses' life, who we're going to look at today, these are people who made decisions early on in his life that could have led to those moments of if onlys or should haves, but they made their decisions based on a confidence and a faith in who God is. And so today as we study them, the challenge for us is can we be those people who understand that there is something better, there's something bigger to live for and to live without regrets in our spiritual lives. So pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you again for this time. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the joy that kids remind us of that we should have, uh, for the fun we can have together, just being able to laugh at ourselves and, and enjoy this life that you've given us. Um, we thank you for the stories of new life. We thank you uh, just for how good you are to us day after day. I pray now, Lord, that you would teach us all how to trust you more, to believe in you more, and, and to live our lives in light of the truth of who you are. So speak through me now. Uh, let this be about you, God, not about me or any individual, but be about you. We give this to you now in your name. Amen. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. If you are new to the Bible, it's kind of towards the end, uh, a book called Hebrews, uh, near the end of your Bible. If you're using a digital Bible, well, you can find it by typing in Hebrews, and you'll find it there. So Hebrews chapter 11. Now, before we even get into today's text, I want to start with verse 1. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11 kind of sets up this whole series, and we want to review this for just a moment. The author here of Hebrews begins by saying, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So when we start with our definition of what faith is for us, according to this series, it's faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. And when we originally kicked this off, we broke it down to look at what does that mean? What are things hoped for? So the first thing is this, it's hope in the promises of God. So faith is the assurance of the promises of God. What God says he will do, he will do. We find that throughout scripture when, when sin entered into life that God said, I will one day strike at the heel or I will crush Satan even though he strikes at my heel. I will do away with sin and death. I will send my son. We find from time and time again, Jesus says things like, I am making all things new. I will restore what is broken. And these are promises of God that he will make things new, that he will make a way for people to have relationship with him once again, friendship with him. These are promises of God, and there's many throughout Scripture. So faith is the assurance of the promises of God, a conviction that those are true. 
The other part of faith is the assurance of the character of God. And often the promises of God are rooted in the character of who He is. So faith is the, faith is the assurance of His character. If God says that He is good, then we can trust that He is good. If God's character says that He is in control of all things, then he, we truly can trust that He is in control. If God's character is that He is just, then there will be one day He, he will deal with the problem of evil and sin in the world and there will be justice If God is compassionate, then we can trust that He cares for the broken, for the hurting, for the lost. So we have assurance in His character as well, in His promises. And the other thing, according to Hebrews chapter 1, it says a conviction of things unseen. And and what this is, is when we looked at it, the Greek understanding of things unseen meant the eternal life or eternal things. So we have a... Assurance of His promises. We have assurance of His character. And we have assurance that this world is not all there is. That there's more that meets the eye. So when we talk about faith and how it affects our decisions, we live in a way that there's an eternal life, a life that we do not see that also is at play. It's not just what we see. So our faith is affected, and faith is being assured of those things that we do not see. So that's how we, we want to begin with this understanding of what is faith. And so that's the understanding that we want to have as we look at these stories. And each story of faith, these people exercise a confidence in these things. So now let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to jump all the way down to verse 23 and look at our story for today. Verse 23 says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So our text for today, we begin with this idea of, by faith, Moses' parents. So it starts off, and we're going to look at the people surrounding Moses' life, his parents, and in a moment we'll even see other people in his life. We look at their faith, and then we'll end by looking at some of the faith of Moses. So, But to get a better understanding, now I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. So this is in the very beginning of your Bibles. It's the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 1. We find a greater understanding of this story that was mentioned. I'm picking it up in verse 15. We're going to talk through this and kind of go through it pretty quickly. It says this, The king of Egypt, which is at the time was uh, called a pharaoh, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of them whose name was Shepra and the other was Puah. So if you are having a daughter anytime soon and looking for names, I've got a couple ideas here for you. Puah. It's, you know, it's, it's nice. Okay, so um, s- s- <laughs> spoke to the midwives, and, and they said to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put the son to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So this is an idea here where, where Pharaoh wasn't he didn't want the Hebrew, as the Hebrew people were growing in numbers, and by the way, at this point, they had been living in the land of Egypt, and as time went on, they were experiencing greater and greater oppression by the Egyptians to the point where now they were essentially in uh, a form of slavery living there. And But as the people and the numbers were growing, 
the pharaohs were getting concerned and saying, they're going to become so many of them that they could have an uprising against us. So we're concerned. So Pharaoh said, all the males, we will put them to death when they are born. So that years down the road, they don't have a strong army that's been built up. So the idea here was he said, let's, let's get rid of essentially the Hebrew people. We need to end them. And so we'll start this way, by killing the boys when they are born. But the midwives, it says in verse 17, feared God and they did not do as a king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So when this happened, then the king of Egypt called them in and asked them why they weren't doing this and they gave a good excuse. They said, well, the Hebrew women, they they give birth so fast that we haven't even had time to get there. By the time we're there, the boys are already born and they already have them at home and there's just nothing we could do about it. Which wouldn't that be nice, ladies? (laughs) And for some reason here, this this first part of the story, the Pharaoh seems to accept their word and doesn't say anything. He just says, oh, okay. Guess they give birth quickly and these boys are still living. But I want you to notice, first of all, here, we want to look at the faith of these midwives. Because they're often forgotten, but they're an important part of this story. They were instructed to kill these baby boys when they were born, but they refused to do it. They went against the king's commands and did not follow through. Now, my guess is they were doing that at risk of their lives. I'm sure that there was something against going against Pharaoh that the Pharaoh could say, you haven't been obeying me, so I'm going to end your life. But we don't have any indication that he did that to them. But they chose at this moment that their faith, for some reason, their belief in their God and the creator of the universe caused them to not follow through. Now, question for you, and you can throw out answers. What part of God's character or what part of his promises do you think they were trusting in that caused them to behave in this way? Any ideas? Okay, they were trusting that God was able to protect them. Yeah. Okay, what else? Okay, yeah, and, and perhaps they said, well, even if he doesn't protect us, we answer to God, not Pharaoh. Yeah, so there was a, a greater belief that if he is overall, then we'll, we'll, he wins. <laughs> okay, any other ideas? Yeah, definitely that, that conviction of things unseen, right? Like, well, hey, we'd rather please God than please Pharaoh. If this is all there is, then, hey, we have, a be- we have something better waiting for us. Great point. Yeah. Okay, yeah, there could be something about this too, that there's a promise that God gave to their ancestor, to Abraham, that said, I will bless you and, and multiply you and your people will be as great as the sand on the seashore. And so perhaps these midwives are remembering that promise of God And saying, wait, we're not going to get in the way of God's promise. He's going to multiply our people. We're not going to stop that. We trust God's promises. Yeah, definitely. Great. So these are the kind of things as we read through scripture, we want to ask these questions and even come to these conclusions and say, okay, what are, how is God working? So yeah, I think those are all great points of probably what's going on in the lives of the midwives here. They believe somewhere in the character of God's sovereignty. They believe they trusted and feared God more than Pharaoh, certainly. And so when we begin this story, we want to look at the midwives and say, wow, there's an example of what it looks like to believe in something better.
Okay, so the story goes on. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Pharaoh, so he's changed his plans. He commands all the people, saying, Every son who's born to you cast into the Nile, and every daughter you to keep alive. So now he's just putting it on the people. You need to cast your own sons into the Nile River. And a man from the house of Levi in chapter 2 went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, let me just pause right here. This isn't just because she saw he was born and saw that he was beautiful. I mean, most parents, when their child is born, think their child is beautiful. Um, let's be honest, not every child that is born is beautiful. All right, can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? I don't know if I am. Um, I have three kids. One of them wasn't beautiful when, when he was born. I won't tell you which one, but um, they all squeeze back into shape after a while. You know, it gets better. (laughs) But it's not just that he was looking at, they looked at the child and said, wow, this is a beautiful child. We'll keep this one. No, it's not that. It's an understanding that goes even um, further back. In the New Testament, we see some description that maybe it had something to do that they, they believed that there was something special about the child. Maybe they had something in store for him, or it could be, and I think this is also the, he, the author here is using the word here, tov, which is the Hebrew word for good. It's a very common word. You use a boker tov, good morning. It's often used throughout Hebrew. But it's also the same word and description. When God creates his creation, at the end of each day, he says, it was good. tov. When he creates mankind, he looks at mankind, and creation is done, and he says, it is very good. It was told me out. So when this baby is born and they look at him and they see him and they say, this baby is good. He's tov, ki tov, because he was good. He was part of God's creation. He was a gift of God given to him. He had the image of God on him. He was made in, in a way by the hands of God. And they looked at him and said, no, we are not casting this into the Nile because this is God's creation. God has something in store for this child. We don't know what it is. Maybe they had something in mind, but what they did know is that we don't take the place of God. This is his precious child, and this child is good. So they wanted to keep it. It, him. They wanted to keep him. (laughs) My wife had to teach me to quit calling babies it. Okay, he wanted to keep him. So they kept him, and it says when they could hide him no longer, and this is after three months. I don't know what that means. How do you hide a child the first three months? I would think the first three months is the hardest time to hide a child. Um, you could hear mine from a, a block away for the first three months. But So they hid him for three months, but when they could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket, she covered it with tar and pitch, and she put the child in it and set it among the reeds in the bank of the Nile. Keep that in mind. They didn't throw the basket out in the middle of the Nile River. They set it among the reeds on the side. His sister, so the baby's sister, stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from you among the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, Go ahead. And so the girl went and got the child's mother. So Pharaoh's daughter said, said, Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the women took the child and nursed him. The child grew. 
She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now let's look at the story a little bit more here because this gets kind of interesting. So they hide the child for three months and then they put him in a basket in the bank of the Nile River. And there's a side literary kind of a nerdy note here where she covers the basket with tar and pitch, it says. It's the same uh, phrase used for when Noah built the ark and they covered it with tar and pitch. So the author here is wanting us to recall another time when God used something floating in the water to preserve humanity. It's, I don't think the parents of Moses were thinking, oh, we'll build an ark for our child. But uh, the author here wants us to associate the fact that God uses unlikely things and he will preserve his line and his people. And he did something very similar than when he um, built the ark. So that she covers the basket with tar and pitch to make it watertight and places it in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then soon the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe. Now, isn't that interesting? Is it possible, and I'm going to posit to you that it is, that she knew exactly where Pharaoh's daughter went to bathe? That she knew exactly the place, so she takes the child and places it among the reeds near Pharaoh's daughter. Her only hope at this point was perhaps someone will have mercy on my child. She didn't throw it out in the Nile. Now the other thing here, notice this. They were commanded to place the baby boys in the Nile River, right? So she could even say like, I obeyed. You never said, don't use a boat. (laughs) You just said, put them in the river. So she puts the baby in a basket in the reeds on the bank of the river. I do believe that she intentionally was hoping that Pharaoh's daughter would find this baby. I don't know if she knew what would happen, but she was thinking, could this be the only way? Further evidence is this. They had Moses' older sister, Miriam, who I think at the time was six or seven years old, somewhere around there, was following and watching at a distance. When Pharaoh's daughter came down and was bathing and found the baby crying and said, bring that baby to me, all of a sudden this Miriam, Moses' sister, shows up. How did she get access to just walk up and talk to Pharaoh? Well, I'm sure there was a little bit of commotion and who's going to mind a small little girl? walking up and saying, oh, you have a baby. Let me see the baby. And this six or seven-year-old has a great idea. Hey, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter thinks, what a great idea. So she goes and finds, hey, mom, yeah, you can nurse Moses for a little while and get paid for it. I remember when my wife said, hey, you should pay me for this part of raising the kids. Like, well, how much does it cost? And she said, well, whatever Pharaoh paid. Um, (laughs) But something about this is interesting to me in this story. Is Moses' parents here, you you can kind of see that they got to a point where they were at a loss. They saw the baby was good. They believed that God had something better for them. They believed that there's something about this child. At the very least, they weren't going to play God and, and take his life. So did they come up with this plan and say, perhaps Pharaoh's daughter will have mercy? Maybe. But the picture I get is they're kind of stumbling through this saying, what do you think will work? Where do, what do we do now? Now, did they get a direct revelation from God to tell him to do that? Maybe. I don't know. It's not in the story, so I don't think so. 
But there's something about this that I love it because it's a picture of two parents who are trying to do the right thing and they're kind of coming up with some ideas and it's almost like step by step they're figuring this thing out. But each step of the way, God is proving that he is faithful and he is good and he'll even use their ill attention, their, their good intentions or maybe even their, their wrong steps, God was going to use it. But at the very least, somewhere in there, they had to trust They had to have a belief that if God is good, he'll do something with this child, what he needs to do. If God is in control, then if we trust that this baby is left in the Nile River, then it's in his hands. It's kind of stumbling through. What I like about that is that's how I feel like faith is often for me. God, I kind of think that maybe this is what I should do, but I'm not sure. I want to trust you, but I'm not sure how that looks. It's going to be difficult, God. How can I do this? And you see them kind of walking through this process. I believe that Moses' parents were believing similar promises to the midwives. That God is the giver and taker of life. It's in his hands now. That God, if he wants to do something with this child, he will That God can even use someone like Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter in my child's life. Look what happens with Pharaoh's daughter. She has mercy and pity on the child and actually allows the child to spend, I don't know, the first year, the first two years with his mother before he's raised. Look how God used that. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, we have no reason to believe she believed in the God of the Hebrews. We have no reason to believe that she believed in the Creator God, that she had any sort of reason to care for the, the Hebrew children. We don't, there's no reason to believe any of that. But God used someone who didn't even believe in Him to accomplish His will, and that's how He does things sometimes. Do you know when we look around at our... Even look in politics in certain countries when they're messed up, not ours, but other countries that have messed up politics. And it's really easy to think, well, God can't use these types of people or these people to accomplish anything good. And our God's on his throne saying, are you kidding me? I use messed up people every day. I'm using you, aren't I? <laughs> You see, he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish using who he wants to use, and he will. And in this case, God wanted to preserve Moses. In fact, look at what happens in Moses' life because of this. He's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And when we read from Acts 7, we get a better idea, too, that he was raised in the ways of the Egyptians. He was schooled as an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. He had access to Pharaoh. And in the ancient world, if the Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, he was now part of the family of Pharaoh. He wasn't in the line to inherit the throne, but he had access to everything else, the home, the the privileges. He was a wealthy Egyptian. Later on in his story, we learn that that was important. It was important that he had access to Pharaoh. It was important that he had an in with him, that he knew their language, he knew their customs, their culture. God used this to prepare Moses for what he wanted to accomplish later down the road. And he used the faith of his parents to trust and say, God, if you are in control, then this isn't out of your control and do what you need to do. And it led to the exodus of the people out of Egypt because of this event. And it reminds me at the times when people mean it for evil, God can use it for good. 
reminds me of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We have the verse for you up here on the screen. It says that God is able to use all, He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, please note, this is not saying God causes all things to happen for you and He'll make all the tragedy is good. He doesn't say that. He says God causes things to work together for good. Tragedy and pain comes in our lives and God, that breaks the heart of God. Bad things happen in this world. There's evil in the world. And God isn't looking at that saying, oh, I caused that evil just so I can prove myself. No. He allows evil. And often he allows evil so that he can show up. But God is able to take the bad things and the tragedy and the pain and he can cause it to work for good. His plan here. He needed to prepare one of his people in this way. And he used the faith of his parents who trusted Remember, Hebrews 23 says, By faith, Moses' parents trusted Moses. And God caused it to work for good. And this doesn't always make sense to me. I know, uh, you know, when I, when I was young, I have a pretty large family, and one of my uncles died in a tragic accident. He drowned. And about 11 years, older, 11 years later, his brother died in a tragic construction accident. And I look at that and I think, I don't see, I, I still to this day don't know what good God is causing from that. I don't know. And so there's questions left unanswered and there's things that I think one day on the other side of eternity I'll say, okay God, really, what, what about that one? And I don't know. But I do trust and I do believe that God is able to take what is broken in this world and make something good from it. We do know that that's the way he works. It's part of his character. And some of this, we're going to have to wait to the other side to figure it all out. Moses, I'm sure, had many years where his parents were saying, God, I don't get it. My son's now an Egyptian. (laughs) What's up with that? Really? And then we see, and for the sake of time, I'm going to speed up the story and just walk you through it. So Moses is raised now. God uses Pharaoh's daughter. But the day comes when Scripture tells us that Moses chose to give up the passing pleasures of sin, all of the riches of the house of Pharaoh, all of the things that were at his fingertips. He chose to give that up to be associated with his people, the people of God, to live the ways of God. It caused him to stand up for his brothers, which made him leave and flee to the wilderness, to the Sinai wilderness, which again, side note, later when Egypt or when Moses leads his people out of Egypt, into the Sinai wilderness. Did you ever wonder, how did Moses know how to find springs of water? How did, he, how did he know the terrain? How did he know where to go? Well, he spent 40 years there as a shepherd. God used that period in his life to even prepare him to lead his people through that desert. Because I used to live in the Middle East. I would never even drive my car from that part through the Sinai Peninsula. It's way faster to Egypt, I mean to Israel, if you go the other way. But Moses knew it. God prepared him for this. There was a reason, even in that. So Moses gave up the passing pleasures of sin to be associated and called the people of God, to lead his people. And this is where, for me, it's tough. How does this work? Francis Chan once said this, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we'll be in trouble if he doesn't come through. Let me say that again. God doesn't call us to be comfortable. 
He calls us to trust Him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where, he, where we will be in trouble if He doesn't come through. See, Moses trusted God and His goodness so completely that he was able eventually, and we see the story of his life, he has ups and downs, where he gives up everything because he saw something better. And he had to trust God so completely that if God didn't come through, his life's over. As we end here, I, I need to confess, I think uh, teaching a series on faith is difficult. And the reason for me it's difficult because we could make the mistake that says having great faith in God means we'll quit our jobs and move to Africa. Having great faith in God means that we'll give up our lives to serve the people in the jungles of South America. Now, for some of you, that might be the case. It really might be. But odds are, that's very few. But God calls our faith to affect our daily lives. Your great faith in Jesus may cause you to be a school teacher, to be a janitor, to be a landscaper, to be an architect, to be a marketer, to be a lawyer, to be a doctor. Your faith may cause you to be a parent raising kids in North San Diego. And what's really difficult for me is sometimes it's hard to take these stories that are really radical and bring them into daily life and say, yeah, so what? So I want to leave us with a little tension and leave it with you today and say, what, will your, what is your response? What, is the, what are the areas in your life in which your belief in God's promises and in character should affect how you live? What opposition do you face? Many of us don't face much opposition. No one's ever asked me to throw my kids in the Nile. But perhaps you have a work situation. You're surrounded by unethical people and you're made, you have to make a decision. Any of us raising kids, we're facing a decision every day of how we raise our kids. How much do we trust? How much does our faith affect how we raise our kids? In a world that is increasingly feeling like it's against what we believe. I even think, you know, we live in a culture where we want our kids to be the best at everything, right? We want them to be the best student, the smartest, get the best scholarships, you know, have the, the best curveball, hit the ball the hardest, make every basketball shot, best dancer, all these things. And so we're in a culture where we spend a lot of time making sure our kids are the best. But you know, there's a faith decision you make even when you say, we choose to not spend Sunday morning working on that curveball and rather be among the community of faith and worshiping our God. You may think, well, that's not a big deal, but it's tough. Trust me, I have three boys, that's tough. But you have to, am I living for what I can see right now or for what's next? Can we be those kind of people? It affects every decision. I brought up the politics already, but we live in a political system that's so confused about religious freedom, I honestly don't know what's down the road in 20 or 30 years from now for our country. I have no idea. But our faith, can we just trust that if God's in control, this isn't out of his control? We can live in light of his truth. I'm going to ask the worship team to start making their way up, and we're going to end with one song. And as we end, I, I, as I said, I kind of want to just leave you with a little bit of tension. What decisions do you need to make in your own life? What things? Can we be 
where Paul says this, I count all things a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Such great conviction in what we cannot see. That song, maybe you need some time to process you to become a follower of his. And I want to tell you this morning, he wants you, he wants a friendship with you. And maybe today's the day you say, God, I'm tired of running. You got me here somehow. So I want to follow you. Whatever it is, let's be people. Find a solidarity. Let's all stand together as we pray and sing this last song. God, we thank you so much for this time. I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you would lead us in this place. Would you speak to us? Would you who have such faith and in your character that we live in a way that causes the world to see that there's something better, something more. So God, we thank you for this time now and ask that you move.